show a for all mankind podcast i'm your host nick yeager and with me today are rick hi bob scott hi bob tom hi bob and kevin hi bob today we're discussing the sixth episode of season four as usual i'll start with my synopsis and then we'll move on to the discussion but before we get to that i'd like to announce a holiday giveaway join me if you will as i meander to my point in a previous episode, I asked the gang if turning art into a job compromises that art. And everyone interpreted the question as like, would they be willing to sell out? And of course, the answer is yes. We all Hell need yeah. money. <laughs> uh, but I meant the question more along the lines of if you're making art for someone else, is the art changed by that process? And the answer is yes here, too, because art should always be a collaboration between the artist and the audience. If you make a podcast in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did you even release that podcast? <laughs> so how does this relate to a holiday giveaway, you're asking? Well, I need help from you, Moonshow listeners. This podcast does not exist in a void. I do it partially for me because I love For All Mankind, but I also do it for you. And I'd like to attract a larger audience, and that's where you come in. By leaving a review of this podcast on your pod platform of choice, you can help spread the word. So I'm running uh, a contest of sorts, or a draw, really, just a draw. Uh, you could win a set of eight or so For All Mankind mission patches. They're, you know, those like those patches that the astronauts wear on their astronaut outfits, uh, you know, saying that they work on Pathfinder or Jamestown or whatever. So you could win some of these patches, but to enter the draw, you need to collaborate with me, listeners. I want you to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leave a five-star review of Moonshow, this podcast that you're listening to right now. Just scroll down and click five stars or however many stars you think is fair, as long as it's five. <laughs> and if you want, write a little review. Then once you've done this, just go to facebook.com slash super anemic and post your name in the comments for the thread about this giveaway. Or if you hate Facebook and the lizard aliens from V who run it, then go to superanemic.com and write your name in the comments for the relevant post. And I guess we'll just go on the honor system here. Like I considered asking people to screenshot their review so I'd have like proof of who actually did the thing. But I feel like this is starting to be too many instructions for people to handle. <laughs> in any case, once you've reviewed and posted your name in the comments, you'll be automatically entered for the draw. And yes, people who've already reviewed the pod in the past are eligible. And in a couple weeks, I'll pick a winner at random by rolling a die, and I'll DM the winner for their address, and they will be sent the For All Mankind mission patches. Woo, that was a lot. So are we allowed to review ourselves? Well, I wondered, eh? I was like, <laughs> are panelists eligible? Because I know like, 90% of the audience for this pod is people who are on the pod. <laughs> so I don't, we can discuss. We shall discuss that when the pod is over. Like, 
or just tell me where you got the patches. Like, that's what I was gonna say. Just (laughs) that's it, eh? You can ask uh, Kevin because it's his wife who got the patches, and she was the one who came up with this giveaway idea. So, uh, thank you to Meg. And I was like, oh, would she want to be a panelist on Moon Show? And Kevin was like, oh, she doesn't actually watch For All Mankind. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? Yeah, she has she has a really weird reason why she doesn't watch it. She likes sci-fi, but just not this show for some, for a really weird reason. Has she like she's watched like a couple episodes and didn't yeah. get into it or she likes it. She just doesn't like the audio. She has gripes about the audio mixing or the or something like that. And oh my God. Uh, as an audio professional, apparently it grates on her. I don't know. <laughs> I don't see it or hear it. I mean, I kind of get where she's coming from. Like we all have her like our thing. So I, I get it, but totally with her. Well, Tom do you mean you just like relate to having like being uh, sort of sensitive about sound or in particular, you think for all mankind is bad about it? No, I, I relate to being, to having that be a, a, a contributing factor. You know, I'm not going to listen because the audio is so bad. I don't notice that in for all mankind, but I've removed a number of podcasts from my subscription list uh, over the years because I, the content was fine, but just usually it's, uh, particular hosts i just i really don't yeah, like their voice i've done that too uh, yeah and everyone will be annoyed by someone's voice right and vice yeah. versa and like i'm sure there are people out there listening to this being like shut up bitch okay who <laughs> <laughs> just cannot listen even though the things i'm saying are scintillating they just can't handle my voice i mean it seems five star worthy the things you're saying just <laughs> just putting that out there <laughs> <laughs> Definitely worth five stars. All right, that's enough of that. On to the show. <laughs> Episode six, Leningrad. Margot sits in a literal storage room watching delegates from the M7 nations arrive in Russia. She's particularly interested to see Aleda there representing Helios. She's in Arena's ear advising her on the engineering aspect of things. When Aleda tells the summit that they'll need two trillion dollars to finance all the stuff they'll need to mine goldilocks everyone is shocked which i mean what did they expect like you didn't come to the summit thinking it was going to be cheap <laughs> arena eli and aleda talk in private and discuss that this project might not be viable because the profits of goldilocks would probably only come in like 40 years and no one has that kind of patience or foresight They conclude that the best course of action would be to haul the asteroid to Earth and mine it from there, speeding up profits because Earth already has all the equipment they need. Eli is pretty much useless at the science stuff, so it's up to Aleda and Margot, via Arena, to work out how to get Goldilocks to Earth. Margot realizes she can't work through Arena and asks permission to reveal herself to Aleda, even though this would mean having to go public with her defection. Arena thinks Margot is drawn to the power that will come from a higher position, but Margot claims she just wants to work the problem. So she goes to visit Aleda in her shitty hotel room, and it's a tense moment at first, but Aleda jumps into Margot's arms and weeps with joy to find her alive. But then they argue about Margot's defection and Aleda's resentment. Aleda is angry and goes into one of her patented one-upmanship speeches, Blaming Margot for the JSC bombing, or at least blaming her for not being there to suffer along with the rest of them. At first, Aleda refuses to work with Margot, but eventually relents. Just like Margot, she's all about the work. Last week, I wondered if Ed was going to break bad, but turns out it's Miles who's breaking bad. When Ilya gets his henchmen to kick Miles out of the black market by physical means, 
Miles goes to the North Koreans and gets their goons to kick Ilya out of his own operation, with Miles turning himself into the Walter White of obsidian smuggling. And as to Ed, he's breaking good, sort of. He doesn't know what to do with himself now that he's no longer XO. He watches a video of Kelly and Kid on a transport to Mars, so we know he knows they're coming. Uh, and finally, he decides to go down to Ilya's speakeasy, proving that the top brass is aware of all the black market shenanigans going on, and they're simply choosing to turn a blind eye. The new XO is Palmer, and he and Danielle are freaking out trying to figure out how they're going to manage the Goldilocks project, considering they're understaffed and under-equipped. Palmer visits a hungover Ed and reminds him that even though he's no longer XO, he still has a job. And I feel really dumb for not realizing that when I was speculating last week that Ed would be sent back to Earth. Danny may run Happy Valley, but she never had the power to fire Ed from Helios. So he's still project manager of Happy Valley, and Palmer wants him to sign off on new employee contracts. But Ed doesn't do that. He joins the Lower Deckers as Massey tries to convince them all to form a union. Most of them are reluctant, but Ed shows them the new contracts, which would take away the bulk of their profits, and he encourages the group to strike. Okay, so before we get to the larger uh, discussion, Kevin, can you explain what iridium is used for and why it's so valuable? I mean, iridium is a metal. It's a heavy metal like platinum and and gold and whatnot. So a couple of things. So because it's so heavy in the formation of the Earth, most of the iridium kind of like sunk into the core. So there's very small amounts of iridium on the surface of the Earth where it's easy to mine. So like that's why it's so rare on Earth. And and it is true that it is more prevalent in asteroids. Um, And in fact, uh, the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs um, was iridium rich, or at least that's the the sort of going theory. Because if you look through the layers of sort of rock, you can find this layer with like an excess amount of iridium right at the time when the dinosaurs died. So that that kind of makes sense. All of that. So what is iridium good for? In the real world, iridium is used in a bunch of like niche applications, like catalysts to like make chemicals, like drugs or polymers or stuff like that. Used a little bit in LEDs and used in like specialized aircraft components, which is all cool, but it maybe doesn't sound that great. But that, in part, the reason it's used in such small, you know, in such niche applications is because it's so rare. So we can't afford to use it for like much stuff. So we use it only in the highest value applications. But actually, iridium itself as a metal is like a really cool metal, a really good metal. It has like these properties, like it's like the most corrosion resistant metal. It's like really high stiffness, it has a really high melting point really low thermal expansion. So it has all these really good properties that it would make it good for things like structural, you know, for structural applications or like line the insides of tubes that are carrying corrosive chemicals because it wouldn't corrode the inside of the tube. Like, so there's all these applications that it would be good for that we don't use it for because it's so expensive and hard to get at. So I think it's relatively logical to say that it would like have high value in like the Muncho universe that like, and even bringing in like however many, what is it like 40,000 tons of it or whatever the, the asteroid mass is, it would still be valuable. Like in other words, even if you had a surplus of it, it wouldn't kind of drop the the value of it to zero in the normal economic sense because there's all these applications that I could imagine coming out. And like in the Moon Show universe, it'd probably be good for like lining the inside of fusion reactors and stuff like that. Um, right. So, yeah. so it's not just valuable because it's rare. It also has some intrinsic value. 
Exactly. Okay. Thank you for explaining that, by the way, because I've been puzzled because I misinterpreted what I had read years ago about the iridium at the, the it's the KT boundary, right? Is that what they call right. it? Um, I thought that that had said that iridium only comes from asteroids and that's why they knew it was a, an asteroid impact. This makes a lot more sense. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we'll move on to, I guess, what I thought was the best storyline this episode, uh, Margo and Aleda. Yes. So we all know that these two are, in fact, the only two engineers in the entire solar system. <laughs> so it makes perfect sense that Margo would have to reveal herself to the world just so she can work a protractor. God knows the M7 nations could never just teleconference in hundreds of other perfectly confident engineers to work this problem. Margo had no choice. Okay, uh, so Nick, Nick, you're overloading the sarcasm meter. <laughs> A bit much, eh? Okay. <laughs> All the listeners who hate my voice are like, oh my God. So let's discuss Margo's motivations. Is this just another example of bad writing? Uh, that they didn't think other engineers could do this? Or do you think Margo was trying to get more power, like Arena accused her of? Do you believe she's sincere, that she really just, just want to do math and willing to expose herself just for the joy of working with Aleda again? Like, Rick, you've posited that Margot's been working Arena this whole time. So do you take this latest move by her as further proof of that? I'm not sure, because this this kind of... I mean, I I loved the Margot stuff in this episode. But yeah, and it didn't dawn on me. You're You're absolutely right that there is absolutely no reason why only these two people can figure this out. Uh... It's not a particularly complex problem. It's, in fact, fairly straightforward, I would think. I'm not sure now if Margot was playing Irina or not. Irina seemed a lot different. There was, just in general, there were some out-of-character moments for a lot of people in this episode. Go on. Uh, Irina admitting to being out of her depth for a change. Uh, she certainly seemed not as much in control and, and not hiding whether she was or not as much as she has been. Uh, Hide, you mean hiding that from Margot or from Eli and Aleda? From anybody. Because I you, felt like she was using to Margot to hide her, you know, relative lack of competence from Eli and Aleda. And exactly. But then we were also seeing her when, you know, where she's like, uh, I need a break. And, you know, then she just ran out of the room because mm. she, even with Margot in her ear, it was getting over her head. Uh, we haven't seen anything like that from from Maria. And I'm not, I don't know if it's if out of character is really the right word, but we just haven't seen this. Um, I think Margot is feeling more in control than she has since the season began. That's not unusual for her. Uh, the the speech she gave, which was clearly not what she wanted to say, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I mean, she she knows well, she had no choice. Yeah, she she knows what she has to do to just to survive. I'm sure we will talk in quite detail about Miles, but I think Miles just became a completely different character. Yeah, we'll uh, get to him later. Ed as well. Now, granted, I think they they made it clear that several months have passed, or there some time has passed since between last episode and this one. But there just seems to be a lot of really different behaviors coming out of people, and so I'm really not sure what what Margot is up to now, if anything. But I did love the the reunion. I wept of her later. Yeah. <laughs> so do, do the rest of you think uh, Margo's being sincere that she really just wants to get back to being a proper engineer? I think with what they've presented us with in this episode, it's simplest to assume 
that she is being uh, sincere when she tells Arena, this isn't about trying to get more power. I don't care about being revealed as still alive and a defector because what's important to me is doing the work. And I think that does line up with the character of Margot that has been developed over the past previous three seasons. She's all about the work. She's not about the people. She was in definitely a a huge position of power at NASA, but not because she wanted to be in charge. That was just that that was the work. That was her doing the work. She's always been about the work and not about people. And you could see it even in the reunion scene that uh, that Rick enjoyed. I thought it was incredibly well performed on both sides, meaning the emotions just falling off of Aleda when she uh, ran and and hugged Margot. That that was real. That was very much in character. And then there's Margot having no idea what to do. <laughs> yeah, how she feels about Aleda, what what connection they had uh, before the bombing she's she's like a robot i i think the reason that margo looks so confused and lost during that hug not knowing what to do is because she doesn't feel that connection with other people it for her it's it is it, it just all about the work kevin i see your you look like you partially agree partially disagree yeah i mean i read i read the hug a little bit differently like i agree margo's emotional palette is not the same as the average person um, but I do think she cares for certain people, Aleda being one of one of those few people. Like I read that hug is more again that she she just didn't know at all how that conversation was gonna go. And she thought it might start out much worse. So like getting the hug was was like just shocking to her and she just wasn't expecting it. That's how I sort of interpreted that. But I, I as usual, I think the best art has some ambiguity that allows you to kind of put in some of your own uh, you know, your own thoughts. So like that's just my interpretation. I think I read the absence of a more common television trope as as part of her disconnection normally in in most shows like this yeah there would be that moment of oh i thought she was going to be mad but she doesn't really seem to be that mad i'm confused i'm taken off guard but i guess this is okay and then you know returning the hug and getting emotional as well that's what we would normally see in in most television shows this it just stuck with her not knowing what to do in that moment and that lent itself to a lack of emotional connection, but that's, you know, your mileage may vary. This is just what, what I'm reading because they've done a great job of making Margot very socially awkward, withdrawn and about the work, not about emotions. Coming back to Margot's motivation for like trying to insert herself. Uh, like I read it as two things, like primarily, like she just wants to be relevant again and like work the problem and be doing engineering again. And then the other aspect, if there is a strategic aspect, I don't think it's so much that she wants power in the way that Arena thinks of power. I just think she wants a little bit more security. Like right now, it's very easy, or before that, it was very easy for the Russians to disappear her again. But once she gets like it known that she exists, it's harder for them to kind of like remove her. They can still, they still have that power, but it just makes her a little more relevant and a little bit more protected. That's a good point. And I also think that she wants increased control. Because like when she maneuvered herself into a higher position of power at NASA, it wasn't because she wants to boss people around. It's because she wants to direct where the work goes. And so I think it's the same thing here because it wasn't just like, oh, I want to reveal myself. It was specifically, I want to be in charge of the Goldilocks project. She sees a really scintillating, exciting science thing, and she wants to be not just involved, but in control of that thing. 
Now that you you mention it and thinking about it, I think that Margot and Irina have two very different definitions of the word power. Mm-hmm. One considers it power over the people around them. That would be Irina. And then Margot thinks, oh, power is being able to to control the work, to oversee it, make sure that it's done right. And, and to yeah. like affect change on a grand scale. Like Margot is the, you know, Margot and Elena are the ones who are saying like, oh, this is going to benefit mankind, humankind. Irina is just thinking about how is this going to benefit like her political position within the you know Russian hierarchy. Yeah. Per usual, you guys have put into better words the what I was thinking there. I kept going back to those early decades with Moonshow where Margot clearly wanted the power, as I was phrasing the question there. You know, she clearly wanted that. She was actually pretty cutthroat in becoming director and you know, smashed all over other people to do it. Um, but yeah, like you guys have said, I you finally cemented in my head that it's not that she was really trying to be a dictator and totalitarian, that she she wanted to control the resources and control the work, and she wants to do benefit for all mankind uh, with the work that's being done. Um, that's the name of the show. Yeah, roll credit. <laughs> See how that works? <laughs> so that I think she does want to work the problem. She enjoys that. I mean, she really at her heart is being able to do that kind of work. But thank you guys all for kind of cementing that in that she wants to do the work and she wants to have the ability to get that work done. Uh, even if she's not necessarily the one who's all, you know, real deep in the trenches doing that engineering. And I think that's actually, now that I say that, that's probably when she was at NASA, probably her regret is that she got that position of authority in order to do those things. But in that process, it took her out of being you know hands-on in that work mm. that middling uh management situation <laughs> i know that feeling amen <laughs> we all do <laughs> but do we want to explore um Aleda's motivations like was she right to forgive margo and work with her again i feel like we sort of already answered it by saying you know margo cares about the work Aleda is the same way you know margo was telling arena her drug is the work and Aleda is the same way. You know, they're, they're two peas in a pod in, from that perspective. And so I think it was inevitable that, you know, Aleda would indeed work with Margot again, regardless of any resentment. Yeah. The, the working together, I, I was not surprised, but um, I, I think it's definitely a stretch to say that she's forgiven Margot mm-hmm. because I highly doubt that she has. And I suspect that the next few episodes are going to show us a little bit more you know what sort of dynamic still exists or exists again between the two of them forgive the, isn't in Alita's quiver the, mm. yeah. the the speech that she gave to to margo the uh discussion they had back and forth i don't see Alita really forgiving her but recognizing that they have to work together in order to solve this problem that needs to be solved and when, when that is done, and by the end of this episode, it sounded like it was done. They did the work and the work is done. They came up with the plan. Yeah, they kind of skipped over that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get more details about that. Un- unless well, well, no, they that, decide well, that's to not... time jump to the ne- in the next episode and the asteroid is there at Earth <laughs> next <Yeah>. week. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't care about the details. I just wanted to see them working the problem a little bit more together. Although there had already been a lot of that in this episode, like even though it was, you know, through arena, there was still a lot of them going yeah. back and forth. So it would have had to turn into a musical montage. 
<laughs> I'd be fine with that. <laughs> yep. I want to just go back to a previous question you had with the the fact that only Margo and Aleda could solve this problem. Mm-hmm. You asked, is it bad writing? Is it that they're really the only ones? I don't want to say it's bad writing on the part of for all mankind, but it's a trope. You know, like in Star Trek, the Enterprise is the only ship in the quadrant that can go do something. You know, it's putting those heroes in there. So it's bad writing, but with uh, a pretty lengthy pedigree for and uh I I completely see what you're saying. And this for me is just another example of something for which I hold Moonshow to a higher standard than other shows. I expect typical shows. I don't know. This is (laughs) Chris won't like this. I expect network shows to do those kinds of dumb tropes, a streaming show. I expect better a streaming show of this quality. I expect better. And even if they hand wave it, even if they do something like, oh, we're not ready to go public. We're not ready to let anyone else know we're working on this. Oh, that's why it has to be just Margo and Aleda for now. You know, we'll bring in other people later on once we've done a little bit, even just something like that. But they they never really did that. They never really explained. I mean, Irina should have said something along those lines when Margo was like, you know, I'm, I want to reveal myself so I can work with this problem. Irina should have been like, you know, I have like, 12 other engineers on staff like they can do this like we don't need you margo no except margo showed earlier that she can beat all of their uh, engineers well sure i i will buy that margo is the best engineer but still i mean and they had that in previous episodes of this show where it was an entire room you know dev and margo and Aleda and bill and a whole bunch of randos working the problem. It's never just two people. And so that's why it really stood out to me that I was like, are they not going to acknowledge the stupidity of, you know, the conceit that these two and these two alone have to do this thing? But in, in a dingy hotel room, the two of them, and they yeah. crack the problem that no one else has been able to solve. Even if it had been a, a nearly dialogue-free scene, just set up Margot and Aleda in a room of engineers and say, okay, now we have a team, and the two of them are going to lead a team that will solve the problem. That would make more sense to me. Some Something just occurred to me, a, a couple of factors that may come into play here. Um, one, both Margot and Aleda are absolutely convinced they're the only ones that can do this. Although I think Aleda would be would have been just fine letting other people deal with it, but she was kind of, you know, had had greatness thrust upon her. We don't know what the situation at Roscosmos is, engineers-wise. They still may be trying to figure out who's loyal and who's not. So Irina may be leaning on Margot because she knows or thinks she knows where Margot's at. Or she knows she has Margot between a rock and a hard place. Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, I have no no problem whatsoever with both Margot and Aleda thinking, you know, this this is a job for super us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, Irina may be her resources may be far less than she's letting on. And Aleda is, for all intents and purposes, the head of Helios right now. And Helios has way more resources than NASA does. NASA is just waiting for whatever Helios says is going to happen. Because I think Helios owns most of the hardware up there. So I think that that's kind of why I, you know, some of the time jumps make sense. This one, I wish they hadn't skipped over the how we got from, yeah, all right, I'll work with you to, hey, we've got it. Uh, mm-hmm. It would have been nice to see some of that in between stuff. 
I, I think this issue with the what we're going to kind of claim is bad writing. I think we're going to get this maybe speculation. I think in another episode or two, it turns out that all of this really throws off the other members of the M7 coalition. And they had the engineers, they were all ready to work it, but oh, Helios and Russia went and took the lead on this. And you know, the, these backroom deals with, uh, you know, add in Eli there for NASA, that they went behind the backs of the rest of the coalition. A privately owned corporation and a trader. Yeah, that might not sit well with the, with the rest of them. That's a good point that I did not consider. Mm, neither. It could really, you know, kind of fracture that the rest of that coalition. And I think that would excuse this, you know, the only two engineers in the that can solve this. Uh, I see what you're getting at. Kevin, you had something to add? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think it's overall a valid nitpick, um, but I like trying to rationalize these things. And my rationalization is along the lines of Margo and Aleda, quote unquote, working the problem was not them coming up with the full solution. It was basically you need to come up with like the glimmer of a solution in like 24 hours because like this conference is happening right now. And like these are the only two people who have the background and the current knowledge to even start to work the problem on that kind of time scale. So to me, it was more like the M7 deliberations needed an answer right now. Otherwise, the whole thing was going to fall apart. And so that's why it was like they had to work the problem in a back room right away. And obviously, the details are going to be worked out by the usual NASA Helios engineers over the coming weeks. Yeah, I see what you're saying. To prove that it can be done so that no one panics and no one leaves the summit. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's move on to everyone's favorite character, Miles. Ten points to Chris, because last week he said Miles was going to become king of Mars and looks like he's well on his way. Or is he? (laughs) Getting into bed with the North Koreans is quite the move. I mean, he was already there, but I feel like it's not a good idea to get even deeper into their camp. Somehow, I feel like it's not that easy to take over an organized crime ring. But maybe it's easier on Mars because there are fewer people involved. And I I sort of discussed this uh, with Gus, who works in law enforcement. Just, I mean, he doesn't work in like, you know, organized crime or anything like that. But I still, you know, I don't, since I don't know anyone who works for the mob, (laughs) I say that. That you know. I actually do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, I I know them tangentially. Uh, I know. Okay, this is, I was going off the rails. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be for the after show. This portion of the podcast has been redacted for legal reasons. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so since I don't know anyone who works for organized crime, I asked uh, my law enforcement friend. And so he was saying, you know, is whether or not it's realistic to sort of like take over someone else's organized crime ring really depends on who's on the other end. It is easier to do on Mars because, and so that does make this a sort of Mars specific situation, which we've been wanting this whole season from Moonshow. But yeah, who is Ilya's contact on Earth? So like last week, I interpreted Ilya finding that newspaper clipping about the Obsidian uh, thing. I saw that as a deliberate act from his contact on Earth being like, you know, are you aware of this? Um, so I feel like whoever his contacts are on Earth are loyal to Ilya and will not be loyal to Miles. But if they're not, you know, part of Ilya's family or if they're not super loyal to Ilya, then they would probably be willing to dump him in favor of whoever's running the show. 
So all that to say, I'm not sure where the show is going. Like, is Miles going in the direction of like going higher, higher, higher? Or is this going to bite him in the ass in the next episode? I can't tell. And so at least because I can't tell, this is, for me, finally becoming interesting. Like, I've I've not loved Miles' storyline up to this point, And I'm at least interested to see where it's going now. But Rick, you made a good point earlier about how this seems a little bit out of character for Miles. Because up to this point, he's been pretty affable. And now he's like willing to uh, beat people up guy. My other problem with this whole thing is when we first met Lee in this season, his North Korean compatriots, minders, watchers, whatever, were like, don't you say hi to her. And now he's able to lend goons to Miles because Miles because Elia couldn't do a thing that the North Koreans weren't going to let Lee have anyway. The, the whole thing makes no freaking sense whatsoever. And Miles had that conversation with Lee in the same room as someone else. There was yeah. a guy standing or at a console behind Lee. Yeah. Unless it's like the quantum leap issue where, you know, now you can have your secret <laughs> conversation in full view of everyone with no issues at all Well, talk about tv tropes right yeah i I was assuming that that they didn't speak english that was the only way that made any sense to me whatsoever that that was my headcanon as well yeah there was someone else in the room but he can't understand what's being said but it's still pretty suspicious to have this like yeah angry angry conversation like yeah yeah well that's Lee Lee was getting very angry at this american who is really unaffected just kind of yeah that's that's bad Mm. Yeah, they've I'm, making, gone from... I'm, I'm doing a facial expression on an audio podcast. What the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> Miles definitely had that look of, this is going exactly how I wanted it to go. I don't mean anything that I'm saying, but I need to say the right thing so this guy will do what I want because I am the kingpin. Mm-hmm. Which again, it, I agree with Rick that this seemed out of character. And I get what you're saying, Nick, that this is like potentially more interesting. But on the other hand, like... I just don't buy that he keeps taking bigger and bigger risks and everything is still going fine. I keep waiting for it to blow up, but like, yeah, this just seemed like very different from what I would have predicted from episode one introduction of Miles, where it was like, he was a bit of a screw up, but he was heart was in the right place and he was just trying to do right by his family. And now it's like, yeah, he's like been pushed into this extreme position. I, I, just, I don't really buy it. I've not, or I've sort of disliked Miles from the beginning, so I'm looking forward to his comeuppance, which I believe is coming, even though, you know, like I said, you know, Chris has argued that the show is going in the opposite direction and he's going to be, you know, king of the world. That may also happen. And, you know, time will tell. But maybe was it the first episode of the season where Miles was lying to the recruitment guy about his his background and stuff. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. that was setting up right from the start that he seems like an affable guy, but you know, he'll do whatever he'll lie, cheat and steal to get what he wants. Yeah. Which is why I still don't give two shits about miles. And unless we're going to get a a scene of him (laughs) stepping outside for a, without a suit. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, since Chris is not here to defend miles and none of you want to be uh, taking the, like, the pro miles position yeah, yeah I, the pro I'm, miles i uh, i don't see how you could i i'm very much with you Nick, as far as this episode did not make me like miles anymore it, it made his character even more unsavory because mm-hmm. now he's leaning into the the illegality and he's 
pushing people out of the way so he can have so he can have more power in the way that more along the lines of what Irina was talking about the type of power that she was referring to that's what miles seems to be chasing after in this episode to put himself into a better position not because you know i'd love this work and it's anything for the work it's no i'm going to put myself in a better position so i can profit so i can do better and the person i was working for did something that I didn't like because I did something he told me not to do. So now he has to go and I'm going to take all his stuff. And it doesn't make me like him as a character, but it does make this particular plot line a bit more interesting because it's adding in more variables and there are more directions it could go now. And I wonder if Ed's story is going to tie in with this because the conversation that Ed was having with Ilya while he was drinking enough moonshine to, you know, be very dead. And he's asking Ilya, how do you go about your smuggling thing? You got a person, you got a person set up on Phoenix and that's where they cut off the conversation. But for all we know, Ilya told Ed how he runs the business. Next episode, we're going to find out that Miles, he took over Ilya's position, but he doesn't know how to run it. But Ed does. See, that's a good point. That's another aspect of it. You can't just, you know, kick someone out of their job and then expect to be able to do that job. Just because Miles was observing Ilya do things doesn't mean he actually knows how to do the things. Or indeed, he doesn't have the same sort of relationships with the people that Ilya has been working with. Anyway, I, I feel like this is. Ah, I don't. I don't want to accuse the show of bad writing again. I just feel like they're presenting something that's. They're presenting it in a way that's more simplistic than it is in real life. And I understand it's a show, and you have to have shortcuts. And this is just one storyline rather than being the entire show. You know, because I'm I'm going to perhaps unfairly again, you know, um, compare it to Breaking Bad, where, you know, Walter White is not a likable person, but you still root for him because he had other things going for him. Miles doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it may have just come down to the charisma of Brian Cranston. No disrespect. Which which is no small thing. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I, I, gosh, I wish I could remember now the context in which I. I don't even remember if it was an article or a video or what, that very recently I saw a thing sort of explaining the the qualities you need in writing to make, uh, not necessarily make a character likable, but to make them worth rooting for. And there was like a list of 12 attributes and you needed like, I can't remember, like you need like six of those things to make the character work. Again, to compare to Walter White, you know, he had enough of those things. Like he had... You know, he had the cancer, so you feel bad for him. And and he had uh, a drive to keep going. And so he had various things about him that made you care about him, even though he was doing deplorable things. And I feel like they haven't set that up with Miles. He he just doesn't have those things. On paper, maybe he does. Like, you know, he's trying to get his family. But I'm sorry, I don't care about his family. They haven't given me reason enough to care about his family or to care about him. Yeah, the the kids became like you know non-factors immediately. They the his kids were important when he was on Earth, but the moment he left Earth, as far as the show is concerned, the kids became you know quite unimportant. And I think that the writers, it's not necessarily bad writing. We're it's the refrain for this episode. Maybe it's not bad writing, but Miles and his wife are separated and they're heading towards divorce, but. Now, every message that he receives from Earth, 
she's sounding more like, hey, when you come home and we're all going to live in this house together, this is our room. Uh, I mean, my room. Um, we'll talk about it. Really, The only thing really that's changed is he's sending money. Well, that matters, Scott. <laughs> well, and, and not to say that that money is unimportant, but that's if they were already like on on the doorstep of divorce and now she's all about you know putting the family back together just because money entered the mix there isn't a whole lot of development for miles wife to make us think that she's motivated by anything other than money they ha they haven't shown us much more than that so that leaves kind of a sour taste in my mouth as far as his family situation back home is oh he oh well they, they have money now they have a nice house and now she likes him again well that's it it's it's hard to root for him getting his family back together when his wife is not presented as being likable either yeah. so it's like why would i care about this family getting back together none of these individual parties are again i, I hate going back to the word likable because i don't need characters to be likable but they're just they're not compelling i i see you thinking kevin <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I have a slight tangent. I don't know if it's a worthwhile tangent or not, but in terms of like pulling some like narrative interest out of the Miles plotline, one thing to think about is what all this looks like from Ilya's perspective. Now, he's a background character, so we don't get to know as much about him, but he seems likable. He seemed like he was running his business in a kind of like reasonable way and people liked him and he wasn't doing anything like too crazy, although I guess he did send his uh, his people to like rough up Miles. So that shows yeah. that he's willing to like play ball. But I guess the the point I'm trying to make is that from the Ilya perspective, you could say you could think of it a couple of ways. Like one is like, well, he got screwed over by Miles. Like he took Miles under his wing and Miles like, you know, backstabbed him. Like that's horrible. And another way to interpret it as a, you know, from like a narrative writing perspective is, well, what do you expect, Ilya? Like you're, you're basically being involved in like criminal activity. Like you go you go off the the like, you know, the path of the law and things like this are going to tend to happen. So like I'm not saying you get what you deserve necessarily, but just the show giving us some of the nuance of like, once you start building a new society, even if it's on Mars, the same kind of like social dynamics reappear. Yes, a black market is going to reappear. And yes, what does that mean? That means more cutthroat behavior because it's outside of the, the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. You, you don't, you know, go playing with scorpions and expect not to get stung. It did seem uh, kind of foolish on Ilya's part to say, no, Milos, no uh, Mars rocks. You don't send it to Earth. That's going to, it might upset the, the apple cart. That might rock the boat. We don't want to do that. Well, Miles did it anyway. And Ilya seemed really surprised. It's like, dude, you're a criminal too. Yeah, that's a good point. And you're also right, Kevin, in that we've not been presented with Ilya's point of view. So we don't really sympathize with him either. And I guess, and again, to your point, nor should we, because he's also a criminal. And I'm not, I'm not sure whose side the show is on. If anyone's like... I'm you know not I mean? sure if I'm supposed to be rooting for Miles. I, I hear what you're saying, but like arguably the best stuff is like I was saying before, ambiguous. Like you mm -hmm. can you can choose to interpret it different ways. And so like I like yeah. that the writers on on Moonshow are not so heavy handed as to just like lay out like Margot is good versus evil or yeah. or to say in this plot line, like this is what you should do or not. It's just kind of like it's like real life, like interpret as you will. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. I'm still interested to see as, as from what I said before whether or not Ed is going to play a part in Miles' story moving forward. Yeah, I actually had not considered that. I mean, I I, I sure didn't see it coming that he was going to, you know, join the union, the strikers. I don't know that he's really doing that either. <laughs> 
Well, that's it. So that brings me to my next question, which is basically, you know, what are Ed's motivations here? Fucking shit. Well, that's it. You know, is he just trying to get back at Danielle? Is he just being petty and he's just stirring the pot? You know, he said himself, he loves to stir a pot. All of those things. He's lashing out because he's uh, emotionally like in a corner. Like he just feels like he's lost everything he cares about. So he's just, this is Ed, like kind of like we've seen him before, but we've never seen him in this position where he's kind of lost the things he cares about. And now he has to just like lash out. Like you can imagine in an earlier season, if he blew up a jet and was thrown out of NASA, like that would have been, he would have lashed out as well. But like he was forgiven in that instance, but not this time. Yeah. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't pull both your tickets. Molly, you can't. I can, Ed. You were stupid. Molly, fuck up one more time. Never gonna happen. I promise you. Then get out of here. That's it. What? That was barely a slap on the wrist. Things got away from him, and that was all the time. It's no big deal. I think he's building an army and, you know, prepping for his uh, mutiny. Or at least, if not a mutiny, then at least just to throw as big of a wrench into the whole works of Happy Valley as he can. You're right. Yeah, that does make sense. I, I feel like um, Mars isn't quite the same thing as like a ship in the sense that it's, yes, they're separate from Earth, but like having a mutiny is not as easy on Mars as it would be on like, you know, a ship in the middle of the ocean that, you know, is not going to have contact with anyone else for months. So I I don't know that a mutiny is that easy to achieve, but that's a good point, Tom, that you're right. He might be just trying to get other people on his side. And if, because this is the first strike in history where you can't just send in scabs. I mean, I guess you could given enough time, but the the Goldilocks situation is so urgent that you have to use the workers who are already there to do the thing. So you can't just send in scabs. So you pretty much have to capitulate to their demands. And so Ed is perhaps seeing that writing on the wall and aligning himself with whoever can then be on his side so that he can then manipulate him for his own ends. I think that's all right in terms of the Ed analysis. But the thing that bothers me about, and you guys have talked about this previously on the podcast, like them being so underpaid in these like extreme roles doesn't make sense to me. And like, it also doesn't make sense that Helios would like lower the bonuses at this critical moment when like morale is like something they care about. Like I know that I get the writers are going for some sort of like, oh, corporations will like penny pinch wherever they can. But like when we're talking about like $40 trillion or $20 trillion on the line, like I just don't see Helios doing that. In fact, at the moment that these workers say like, oh, we're going to strike, Helios would just say, okay, you, we're going to give you each $5 million if this operation completes successfully. Like those are the kind of tactics that like hedge funds use. Like they're like, if you pull in a billion of revenue, we'll give you a million dollar bonus. No questions asked. It's like, why would Helios care about giving them giant bonuses? They, like they'd be fine with it. Yeah. The whole thing made no sense whatsoever as to why at this moment they would pull the rug out from under the workers. It's just, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. So maybe you guys can, maybe I'm misunderstanding something. The plan that uh, Aleda and Margot the and Eli came up with is instead of capturing Goldilocks at Mars and doing all the processing there or the mining and then taking it to Earth for processing, whatever, they're basically going to send it on to Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, but they still need the Mars workers for that first stage. They still need the Mars people to catch the asteroid. 
And yeah. then the so my understanding is that the mining will be done on Earth. So the Mars workers will lose out on those profits. Mm-hmm. But there's still a lot of profit to be made in the like, I don't know how long it would take to accomplish the goal of, you know, so-called catching the asteroid. The capture and redirect is still going to be a, a Mars operation and however long that lasts. But that would be some money. And what money they would be getting from that is is being decreased as well as all the money they're losing because they're not going to be doing the actual orbital mining. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's where I was getting at exactly was, are they cutting out Mars entirely out of all this, but the, the lower deckers and everyone on Mars doesn't realize that they're going to be cut out. And so if they're going to still be involved, then yeah, then those storylines will continue. I just wondered if it's going to be, everyone was gearing up on Mars and then, oh, it's going right on by us and we're not involved at all. Along with that, Dev shows up to Mars just in time to see that, oh, this was a wasted trip, and now I'm here on Mars, and everything's going on without me back on Earth. Indeed. And so those are all good questions, Tom, and I'm interested. You know, we, we've complained on this pod before about how this season is not as interesting to us as it has been in the past, but all of these storylines culminating... And they're all they're all finally affecting each other. We've also complained that like, you know, Margo's on her own in Russia and she's not involved in the greater story. Well, she very much is now involved in the greater story. And so I like that all these storylines are converging and that all these questions you just asked, Tom, are up in the air and need answering. And so, you know, now we're in the second half of the season. It's getting good. It's getting really compelling. At least it is for me. It's starting yeah. to pick up speed. And I had, until Tom mentioned it, I had completely forgotten about Dev's imminent arrival on Mars. All, all of the Helios workers shouting, strike, strike, strike. And I was like, oh, well, we finally got to the strike episode. It didn't even occur to me that they are organizing a strike just as like their boss, 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 boss is showing is up, about yeah. to hit planet side. Yeah. Going to be interesting. And I, I don't, I don't know what role Ed is going to play. I, you, you might have noticed that I was very emphatically nodding my head up and down when you said, is he just being petty? Is he just trying to stick it to Danny? Yes. He is in a position now where he has nothing to lose. So he is going to cause as much trouble as he can just because he can't, because he's mad. He didn't get what he wanted. So he's going to make life difficult for as many people as possible. He will realize that what does he have left to lose? Kelly and Alex. That will probably come into play at some point before the season is over. But right now, he he doesn't realize that he can lose them because the most important thing to him is being able to fly. And his flight stats has been revoked. He He's not in charge anymore. That's that, that was his reason for continuing on. Now he doesn't have it, so now he's going to cause trouble. And I, I think in addition to fomenting a strike, I do think that he's going to hook up with Miles and say, I know how Ilya was doing things Earthside. So we can work together and it, it'll probably not stop at just, you know, getting the good tampons and the good toothpaste from earth. I think Ed is going to start saying, let's, let's really cause some trouble. Let's move some stuff. We really ought not to. This is wild speculation. Wild speculation. But I think he's going to try to inflate Miles's new business in a way that's going to be even more problematic for Happy Valley. We were talking about you know, how, what power means to Arena, what power means to Margo. What does power mean to Ed? I mean, at least part of it for him, I think, is uh, 
freedom. That's why he cares about like the flying. It's like the thrill of being in control of the situation and kind of like going out there, exploring all of those kinds of parts. So yeah, for him, I think power is very personal. It's like, how do I as an individual feel empowered? That's my read on it. And it's like, yeah, it's a pretty sharp contrast to the Margot, you know, for all mankind version of power. Like I want to help everyone. And I think it's, I think the conflict is going to come between Ed and Kelly because Kelly's more on the side of the forum. You know, like she's trying to search for life and things like that. Like she's interested in these grand things. That's what she means by power, the power to make things better, you know? So there's a clear conflict there in terms of how they think about the world. Agreed. She's definitely, there's going to be a point, I, I firmly believe, where Kelly is going to essentially ask Ed, what the hell are you doing? You're burning all this to the ground just because you're upset. This is bigger than you. You're you're being a child. And Ed, going back to my, you know, four hour rant from two seconds ago about why I don't find Miles compelling. I think Ed is a great example of someone sort of on a similar path. I feel like he was always a tough character to like because he did so many selfish things, but I was always rooting for him anyway. There's just something compelling about Ed. And so I care about Ed and I kind of, even watching him go off the rails in this episode, it was, it was fun to watch. Like him getting drunk, complaining about, you know, cinnamon mouse butt vodka or whatever it was. <laughs> like it was fun to watch. Whereas Miles and his shenanigans were not fun in the same way. I, I disagree. I don't think that Miles and Ed are going to work together. I think Miles is going to find Ed in his way. Because Ed likes Ilya. Mm -hmm. Ed understands Ilya. And Ed knows what how far Ilya will go. Mm -hmm. Shit, that is way better than mine. Wild speculation. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, so it, it might be Ed reinstating Ilya and getting rid of Miles. But if that was going to happen, then it's like, why introduce Miles in the first place? Yeah, I'm still not sure what ultimately they're trying to say with Miles, even though Chris has made his position on the on that story clear. I'm still not sure I agree. Let's go to Massey. How do you think she feels about Ed swooping in there and her strike talk? I couldn't quite read her. Is she pleased to have him on her side or is she worried that he's going to steal her thunder? She wasn't chanting with the others. I didn't I, catch that. Yeah, she neither did I. Yeah, when everyone else went, strike, strike, she was just kind of looking like, hmm. Hmm, Nice. That's a good catch. I mean, it's interesting because I would have naively thought that, yeah, she'd be for it because she cares about worker rights. But the implication is instead that what like her version of power is something else like her version of power is she's looking for. I don't know. My impression is she's looking for purpose and she didn't find she thought she would find it in the like, I'm an asteroid miner extraordinaire and it didn't happen. And then she said, OK, maybe I'm a union leader, but it seems like that's also being deflated. So <laughs> maybe that's what she is seeking, that kind of power. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, th that whole there there were a lot of issues with that strike discussion scene that I I was confused by. Um, I mean, I did expect that you know when Ed shows up and he starts to stir the pot, that Massey's going to be like, "Hey, look, this proves my point. This is backing up what I'm saying. So we should all you know band together." But what didn't happen was no one in that room said, "Hey, wait a minute, you were the XO. Why should we trust you when you say that we should strike?" Well, I mean, because he got fired. So, you know, at that point, he is sort of, I mean, he's not he, one of them, but, yeah, he's, you he's, know, he, he did get his ass handed to him. He is humiliated. Uh, true. But at the same time, he's also the guy who 
knew what the conditions were like for the lower deckers and continued to live in the elite luxury as the XO and not give a shit about the workers until he got fired. And now he cares about the workers. Well, you I know, would say he quote cares about the work. He doesn't. He's doing this. For no, his that's own it. Name. He doesn't. But I actually do buy that all those people would not necessarily make that distinction or worry about that too much because I don't know, just speaking from my own experience of being, I don't know, being in any number of like office situations where people will flip camps like on the drop of a dime and people in those camps are just happy to have anyone on their side. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter what they did yesterday. Like, oh, really? You're, you're, you agree with me that the, that these printer cartridges are a problem? Well, fantastic. It's totally realistic, but uh, it is noteworthy that what Ed is offering them is not like a solution. Like he's not saying like, oh, this is the, you know, this is, I, and he has, still has some power, like some administrative power in Hilo. So he could make changes, but instead he's saying strike, strike, strike. So like, that's another reason why Massey might be deflated is because like, this is not what she actually wanted. She wanted conditions to improve, not just for them to like ramp up the adversarial in nature of this uh, organization, right? right? Like, yeah. yeah. If, if you have... He, he was the XO, but he's still the project manager. And he comes down and say, hey, look, these these contracts are going to make a lot less money. Her, her first uh, tactic could have been, well, you're the project manager. Why don't you fix that? Yeah. I mean, that's literally his job, I think, is to like interface between the people on Mars and Helios headquarters. Like he should be the one calling them up and be like, oh, I don't I don't think this is appropriate. We need like he should be advocating for his workers. And so he's not doing that. Like he's a bad, he's bad at his job. Like, yeah. Maintain the original, yeah, maintain shocker. the original bonus schedule. How about, how about that? Well, yeah. Yeah. no, I'm going to go downstairs and tell them that they should throw their, their wooden shoes into the machinery to stop them. Exactly. Cause he just wants to piss off Danielle. Yeah. Sabo. Yeah. Hence the term <laughs> sabotage. 400 years ago on the planet earth, workers who felt their livelihood threatened by automation flung their wooden shoes called Sabo into the machines to stop them. Hence the word sabotage. <laughs> I, I also still think Pretty Boy is, is fanning the flames. I think that was pretty clear during this episode. Yeah, his motivations are still way in the dark. Rick, you think Arena sent him. I could, yeah, I could buy that if that turns out to be the thing. I could also buy that he just wants to get into Massey's pants. That's sort of how I interpreted him. Also possible, which will be another issue for Miles because that's where Miles wants to be. And he views mm -hmm. this new Russian guy as a threat. I'm really surprised that they haven't focused on that more. They give it a big focus when he saw the two of them in Ilya's bar. And he said, wait a minute, she's talking to a guy who's better looking than me. Oh, no, we can't have this. But that's that's where it stopped. They haven't gone back to that since then, which I I found. Yeah, indeed. It's It's another one of those things where like, that would be realistic in real life, but because it's a show, it's like, well, they're not, you know, it's like Chekhov's romance or whatever. It's like, you don't just <laughs> introduce that and then not do anything with it. So it's like, where are they going with that whole triangle? Yeah, Chekhov's you know? love triangle. Yeah. Well, well, hold, hold on. Are people asking for more Miles content in the show? <laughs> oh, <You> God, no. <laughs> more, more scenes involving Miles? Is that what I'm hearing? I don't want more Miles, but I do want more Massey. Uh, I like yes, her. Fair. And fair. I... I think that she's been presented from the start as being a little bit more savvy, a little bit smarter than the rest of the lower deckers. And that she's a little bit more big picture. You know, she's seeing, as you said, Kevin, that, you know, she wants purpose, but, and she's also perhaps more introspective than the others. And she's seeing what's going on and, and noticing when things are wrong and 
bothered by them whereas a, a lot of the other lower deckers seem content just to sort of complain but not really do anything about it all right <laughs> anything else from this episode to discuss i'm very i have very mixed feelings about this episode it was a very powerful episode in fact when i finished it as scott saw i i, I posted on the on the chat wow mm-hmm. um because it it re, you know it was really strong but it's still going in a direction for a lot of it that i don't care about i think that the union plotline is is more interesting now that ed is involved like that at least makes it take a turn in a direction i wasn't expecting so it's at least i'm at least curious to see what happens next yeah it yeah. It, th- it throws in quite a variable that mm-hmm. that could go in a lot of different directions yeah i mean what i will say for the season is is that they're keeping me guessing like That's I, true. I never yeah. i never know yeah. what's gonna happen next so well done on the writer's part for for that aspect uh, uh, one other thing with this episode, and I believe also in the previous one, are we seeing um, the trend, the the trope of management or sales selling something that the the engineers and the workers are saying, you know, that it doesn't work like that. It can't be done. Um, and we've got multiple levels here because we've had a few scenes with Danny and in Palmer where they're like, we've never gotten close to the the numbers that they're talking about here there's another point where they're saying the idea of capturing it like it's moving way too fast it's spinning faster than even that previous one the engineers are saying we can't do this the management in terms of the m7 coalition are saying oh it's easy we just capture this giant asteroid and mine it and you know we have all the money then even have those lower deckers who are saying how difficult things are, even when they're when Palmer and and Danny and previously Ed were saying we've got this task, we're going to go do it. They're even you know saying that what they're asking can't be done. Is this going to blow up even more when we have more leadership on Mars that will see what the reality is? Well, and that's just a that's just a constant always, right? The the um the divide between management, you know, the people asking for the thing to be done and then the people who are actually expected to do it. Yeah, I think, it, but this one is interesting in Moonshow specific in the sense that, you know, Danielle like plays an important role in that. Cause like, you can imagine the people on earth being like, just give me the asteroid. I don't care how you do it. And the, and the workers being like, it's impossible. But like, you know, Danielle both a knows what it actually takes. So she's not unrealistic. I mean, she knows the challenges. She knows, she knows how, those kinds of things. And she also, I think she also in this episode say, said something along the lines of like how much impact they would have, like how it's important for the earth. Like, in other words, she, you know, she has these altruistic ideas in mind of like why they have to accomplish this. And um, so I think that makes it more credible, although the lower deckers may not see that, like they may not agree with Danielle. They're like, well, I'm here doing a job and you're asking me to do the impossible. So that divide is still there. But I just think it's interesting how the, the role Danielle plays in that. Yeah, because she's another person who is in that, you know, Margot Kelly camp of like actually caring about the impact on the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, she would probably also, you know, for her power would also be in that direction, right? Like the the, the power to actually make change for the better. Yeah. Anything else? I was a little bit surprised. Well, I don't know about surprise, but there, there was a moment as Margot was asking to reveal herself to Aleda so they could work the problem together. And a part of me was wondering if somewhere in their conversation, Margot was going to uh, bring up the notion of, hey, remember uh, how I did a whole bunch of wheeling and dealing to get Sergei uh, taken out of Russia and and move someplace safe? 
how about you do that for me? I was wondering if being able to contact and talk with Aleda was going to lead to now, how about you help get me, get me out of here? I feel like that might happen eventually. Mm. I don't know that she would go through Aleda for that. I mean, I guess, although who else does she have? Yeah, she doesn't really have a whole lot of options. Yeah. But I think that maybe Margot, you know, genuinely, you know, she claims that all she cares about is the work. And I kind of do believe her. And so I don't know that she even cares if she's working at NASA or Roscosmos as long as she's doing the thing. Mm-hmm. It it was kind of telling when when she was uh, relaying her story to Aleda that I don't think it was really laid out super clearly for us last season. The the particulars of Margot getting out of JSC and leaving the country. But as she tells the story, she just went outside, Russian contact, and very willingly said, "Okay." Let's uh, let's go to Russia. I'm gonna I'm gonna go there now because she was terrified of prison. And Aleda, this is something I, I meant to say when we were talking about that that scene when Aleda rightly called Margot out and said, "Stop saying that you didn't have a choice. You had choices all over the place. You just made the wrong ones." Mm-hmm. And I I liked that that someone told Margot to her face, "You shouldn't have done what you did. It doesn't really matter what your what your reasons were. You were trying to be altruistic. You were trying to save lives. Cool." But then you ducked out of the consequences of your actions by defecting rather than saying, hey, I did this and this is why she's still going to go to prison. But, you know, that's that's what you get when you (laughs) when you commit treason, even if it's treason for a, quote, good reason. Treason for a good reason. That rhymes. Is the season. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, this is this is Parapal. This is um, off topic. What was with the nuts? That Margot kept eating. She couldn't Thank get Tootsie you. Rolls. Yeah. That, that's she didn't exactly have what Tootsie it was. Rolls. She, yeah, she couldn't yeah. get Tootsie Rolls. So that's that's what she has instead. Okay. I, there seemed to be an inordinate amount of attention to it. So I was like, I, it has to symbolize something. I, I said that about her arthritis mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. her mobility issues. They, they're paying so much attention to it. And there hasn't been any kind of reason or payoff yet. As far as the... As you say, her mobility issues, I don't know if there's going to be a payoff. I think the payoff might have been, hey, she she's getting older now and she's living in Russia and, and life is hard. And you know now she's got an issue with her hand, an issue with her leg. Yeah, that's how I but took with, that, yeah. With, with the nuts, I yeah, there was a lot of attention being paid to it because I do think that maybe the show was trying a little harder than it needed to to say, hey, look, it's the new Tootsie Rolls. Margot mm-hmm. is getting back into her old habits because now that she's actually working a problem, now she's got to have that thing that she will grab and snack on while she's doing it. She hasn't snacked like that since NASA, mm. when she would always have her Tootsie Rolls. So but it's now, showing that she's back into her comfort zone of yes. working on the thing. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay, thank you. Okay, then we will wrap it up. Kevin, I'm guessing you don't have anything to promote? No other scientific papers to talk to us about? Not since last week, no. <laughs> okay, Rick, what have you got to plug? Uh, just uh, that Star Trek podcast and Captain Game Show and Cosmic Potato, which I appear on all of those from time to time. And also, folks, tis the season. Be nicer than usual. Always be nice to retail people and, and your wait staff and everybody that's out there working. Now, especially because the assholes come out in droves during the holidays. Don't be one of them. Follow Wheaton's Law. Be nice. Don't be a dick. Happy holidays. <laughs> hey, man, Will Wheaton says, don't be a dick. Tom, do you want to tell us about your new podcast? 
just released on its own channel is What's Your Head Canon, where two to three people, uh, panelists, in addition to myself, will go and answer the questions that the writers couldn't be bothered with. Uh, the first episode with uh, Neek and Scott came out uh, just the other day. It was first released on Cosmic Potato and uh, further episodes to be recorded and to follow. And thank you guys for the uh, pitches and plugs that have come up preceding its release. And Scott, what have you got for us? Uh, well, when it is in production, you can hear me as the host of that Star Trek podcast uh, where we uh, discuss and dissect and examine new episodes of Star Trek. Or we just talk about Trek stuff if we come up with a topic. We'll think of something. Other than that, you can hear me occasionally on Captain Game Show on Cosmic Potato. And if you don't want to listen to me, then you can feel free to visit my website, www.planetrisecreative.com or the Planet Rise Creative Facebook group. And check out the graphic artwork that I do for fun and profit. At the time of this recording, I am deep into the 2023 Trek Advent Calendar, where I post one Trek-themed image per day throughout the month of December leading up to Christmas. Uh, this year, it is uh, ships from other sci-fi franchises and properties co-opted and redesigned as races in Star Trek. I did not script this. I, I, I'm, I'm making it up. <laughs> And I have an issue with you, sir, giving the Rocinante to the Romulans. <laughs> ah, well, it had to go somewhere. It's a fake. <laughs> so if you ever wondered what a Cylon Raider would look like if the Klingons made it, this is where you go. And That's who the hasn't project. wondered about that? Who hasn't, really? That is the project <laughs> that is currently running on Planet Rise Creative. So go check it out and let me know what you think. And as for me, I'm a regular panelist on the aforementioned podcast, and you can find my weekly recaps of Star Trek episodes at superanemic.com. And don't forget the holiday giveaway. While you're at superanemic.com, write your name in the comments section for the post about the giveaway, or go to facebook.com slash superanemic and let me know in which podcast platform you've added your five-star rating. You could win several for all mankind mission patches. Yay! Ooh. And with that, we say bye, Bob! Bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. I suggest that Alita and I work together on this. No, absolutely not. If we do, I feel confident that we will come up with a solution. She believes you're dead. She'll be upset. She'll be angry. Why would she agree to work with you? Because I know her. She's an engineer's engineer. And when she digs in on a problem, she becomes obsessive. Same as me. It's in our nature. I think I should be in charge of Star City's Goldilocks capture operation. Well, now we reach the truth. You want power? It's like a drug, no? My drug is the work. And that's all that matters. Thank you for listening to Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast on the Infinite Potato Alliance. For more great shows, please go to infinitepotato.com. Our theme music is Small Victory by Steve Combs, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. You can find more of his music at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash Steve underscore Combs. Well, I've, I didn't even get a chance to watch it for a second time because I've been busy today. Right. Yeah, I saw that a couple of you posted they're like, oh, I just watched Moon Show. I'm like, taking your time, guys. <laughs> <laughs>